Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. And Venice, um, really encouraging, Chris, and uh, thankful for how God's working in your life. Uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, if you haven't got your Bibles, uh, there's no excuse. Uh, get up off the couch. Don't be lazy. Go grab your Bibles. I'll give you a couple seconds to do, go do that. Get your tablets out. Get your phones out. And um, I really encourage you to try and just take notes, follow along tonight, because we're going to go on a, a pretty long road. We've got 40 verses to cover, and this will uh, be very, very fruitful for you if you can follow along with me. Um, about four years ago, back in uh, 2016, uh, beginning of 2017, the best way to describe my friendship circle was drama aplenty. There was just heartbreak everywhere. There was uh, couples forming here and a couple form here and then they would break up and th these couple would break up and they would end up together. And I remember it all culminated to one night where me and my mate Maddie were just sitting out on the road and we were just in tears for our friendship circle. How could Christians do this to one another? How could the church treat each other like this? And we called out to God just saying, God, why? And it hit me that night that the church doesn't understand relationships, especially the younger generation. We just don't know how to navigate our way around singleness, relationships. We don't know uh, what marriage is all about. We don't know what we want. And I think sometimes what we want is we want the status of being married. We want the status of being in a relationship. And it's not actually love that's driving us at all. We've been going through a series called What the Church Needs to Hear. And uh, the Corinthian church was a new church and it was figuring all these things out, this new faith of Christianity and how it fits into their culture. And so Paul wrote them this letter in 1 Corinthians to address these problems. And in chapters uh, 5 to 7, he addresses the major problem of sexual immorality in Corinth. And Pastor Ollie began us last week on... Uh, chapters 5 and 6. And what Paul was doing there is he's addressing the people in the church who had this approach to the sexual immorality problem by saying, hey, God is a God of freedom, so why don't we just join in on the naughty noughties and have our fun? And Paul, of course, says that is not the right approach at all. We are, uh, have a new identity in Christ that is not how we approach sexual immorality. And then... Uh, in chapter 7, which we're looking at tonight, Paul is addressing the other approach of the people of the Church of Corinth. Their approach to the sexual immorality that was going on in Corinth was to avoid sex altogether. Even you married couples, you have got to stop having sex. And especially those people who are married and have uh, unsaved partners, if you can't avoid sex with them, you better break off that marriage and divorce them. Those people who are betrothed or engaged in serious relationships, I strongly recommend that you uh, break off that engagement because once you get married, who knows what's going to happen? And to you singles, you blessed, blessed people, you enjoy your celibacy because celibacy is the closest thing to holiness. That was the preaching that these people were teaching in the Corinthian church. These were two massively extreme approaches to a very serious problem. 
And herein lies the root cause of all the problems in many churches today. This massive pendulum swing between legalism and to liberalism. No matter whether you're married, singled, uh, engaged, divorced or widowed, there are many opinions from the church about what the right way to do things are. Single people have no idea how to conduct themselves in their singleness. They don't know what's appropriate and what's not. They don't know how to transition from single to not single. Because you have legalists telling them that you can't touch, you can't marry, uh, you can't um, get involved with someone without marrying them. And it's like the legalism has switched from the Corinthian church to instead of uh, discouraging marriage, they're now pushing marriage almost too hard. And you guys might laugh at some of the unrealistic stories that I know uh, coming from some pretty legalistic circles. I used to um, hang around a lot of people who were on the King James only sort of side. And in the 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 actually says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And these people would interpret that literally to the point where they would not shake a woman's hand. And it was a very confusing culture to be involved in. Don't touch. You should be desiring sex and marriage but, and all these things, but do not get involved in it. And liberalists on the other end, on the other end of the pendulum, they're almost scared of being bogged down in commitment. If you were to uh, ask many people whether they're in a legalistic or a liberal um, marriage, if you asked them, you got down to the nitty-gritty, if they really enjoyed their marriage, if they were really fulfilled, I think deep down many of them aren't because they were pushed into marriage and they were confused. They didn't know how to navigate themselves through singleness into marriage. And no wonder why even in the church divorces are high. People getting married way too early and they're not understanding what they're getting into. And they're facing a world of problems that they don't need to. Single people are told that their singleness is a gift, but at the same time ask constantly, constantly, how's your love life going? Have you met a boy yet? Have you met a girl yet? And when the answer is no, there's disappointment on the inquirer's face and they say, oh, well, you know, that's too bad, but you know, you've got the gift of singleness. Singles feel like second-rate members of the church. Married couples seem to have places of prominence in ministry. And singles are desiring the intimacy of marriage and they want to cleave to someone. With all the confusing voices out there in the church, what do we do? Who do we listen to? This is why Paul writes this letter. He's speaking with wisdom into the situation. And this passage is a rare uh, time when Paul sort of disarms himself in a sense and says, these are not commands, these are my opinions. And he says that consistently in verse 6. Uh, he says this is not a command of the Lord, but is his belief. And some people would say that um, this, this is a reason to disregard the passage because it's purely Paul's opinion. It's helpful, yeah, but it's not applicable. But he says also in verse 40 that he has the spirit of the Lord within him. Because Paul has authority to speak into the situation and we ought to listen to him. 
Do you really think it's logical to disregard one chapter of all of the epistles and everything else is godly given doctrine, but this one can be disregarded? We ought to listen in to what Paul has to say. So in a church where there's differing opinions everywhere about relationship and singleness, what does Paul have to say? What does Paul have to say to us tonight? Let's have a look uh, first. At, um, he begins by looking to the married couples. In verses 1 to 5, uh, reading from verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you, tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Many legalistic churches have taken this passage as an excuse to oppress women. And they would say to women, women, it uh, doesn't matter how you're feeling, whether you're emotionally connected or not, you will not deprive your husband of your body. And it's created a culture of women feeling like objects in their own homes and to their own husbands. And that is not what Paul is fighting for here. As you look down over these verses, you see these are not oppressive expectations. They are equal for both husband and wife. There is no excuse for oppression. It was because of the massive cultural uh, problems in Corinth with the temple prostitution and like, it was a great temptation to, to constantly bombard the people of Corinth, that the men were constantly tempted to uh, engage in temple prostitution. The women were even tempted when things were tough to, uh, to try and make ends meet. But Paul says, because sexual immorality is occurring, it doesn't mean that you avoid sex altogether. He's actually saying... Because sexual immorality is occurring, sex is good, but it is good for one man and one woman, just as God designed it to be, for one's own husband and for one's own wife. He's saying sex is good and it's crucial to a healthy marriage in, verses, in verse 2. In fact, sex in marriage is a right in verse 3. A healthy sex life is a sign of a healthy marriage. In verses 4 to 5, he explains that what a healthy sex life looks like. Where it says in verse 5, not to deprive each other of sex, uh, maybe a better translation could be not to defraud each other of sex. And this is inferring that uh, sex is a God-given right to a married couple. The only reason Paul says is a good reason to avoid sex is to pray. So then, sex can never be used as a reward and punishment system in marriage. Now, we're not naive here tonight. We, we have to be honest, and in most cases, uh, in most cases, women are not sexually driven the way men are. And so quite often that's why this passage has been used as means of oppression and it's been abused by the church. 
the husband would say to the woman, I'm not depriving you of my body, so don't you dare deprive me of your body, as if it's really hard for a man to deprive his body to a woman. Instead of reading this passage like that, instead of reading it like it's all about me, read it like this. It's all about you. It's all about the other person. Men, I understand just as better than anyone that sex is a natural desire that you want to be regularly fulfilled in. And women, I understand that uh, it much depends on your emotional, physical and mental levels. But can I challenge you married couples um, this week and in the future, remember that it's about the other person. Wives, are, are you avoiding sex for what Paul says is the only good reason to pray, or are you avoiding it for other reasons? Understand uh, that with a guy, uh, quality comes with quantity. Think how best you can serve him. And husbands, understand that quantity comes with quality. Well, you might say, I'm always ready to give to my wife. I don't deprive her of anything. Are you really? Do you, are you accommodating to your wife's every need? As my marriage counsellor said to me, Tony, sex begins in the kitchen. Make sure that all of her needs are met. Make sure that you are serving her. And when you do get to the bedroom, don't be a selfish lover. Do everything you can to make sure that she is fulfilled. Get to know her. Now, I say this with all sensitivity. Something that our singles need to understand is that, to begin with, sex is really difficult. It takes hard work. It takes patience. Uh, don't think that your honeymoon is going to be all hunky-dory. It's beautiful, yes, but it's, it's not what you expect. And everyone has a different story. Everyone has different bodies. Be careful how you portray sex to others. And I really struggled with this. Before I was married, I, was, um, I heard stories from close friends and family about how their sex life was just killer. And when I got married, finally, after five years of waiting, I, um, it was, the first couple months were beautiful, they were wonderful, but I realised a couple months in how those expectations that were given to me about sex were really toxic and that it takes time to get to those points of uh, a great sex life. Because we have different bodies, we have different cues. Every couple is different. And when I say that uh, sex is a good sign, is a sign of a good marriage, don't think because your sex life isn't going all that well that therefore your marriage isn't. The key application here in these verses is that sex is about giving long before it's about receiving. It's about the other person. And if your marriage is lived by this principle that it's about the other person and it's about giving long before it's about receiving, your marriage and sex life will be blessed. Let's always be thinking, married couples, about how we portray our sex life to others. It can be very hurtful to those that are struggling. It can be uh, toxic to those that are single and when they do get married. Don't brag about your sex life. In, in a toxic way. Because there's always more that you can give and there's, when you think that things are bad, when you're struggling in it, 
It'll get better if you live by this godly principle. Husbands and wives, I challenge you, not just in your sex life, but in your whole marriage, to to give long before you receive, to uh, honour each other in all that you do. Paul uh, then moves on uh, quickly to, uh, he addresses the widowed and the unmarried in verses 8 to 9, which we'll spend a bit of time on later. Um, we're not going to focus on the following verses so much tonight, the, the, the verses about divorce. Um, the very common thing that was happening, though, as for a bit of context, was because these people who were avoiding sex, um, they were telling the people who were married to unsaved partners to divorce them. And this was a very common thing because this was a new faith and it was common for there to be a partner who wasn't saved yet. But Paul essentially says, at all costs, stay together. If you both agree and it is consensual, then stay together. The reason, reason being that if you, you never know wife, your husband might come to Christ. Or you never know husband if your wife might come to Christ. If you stay together, you are increasing their chances of coming to know Christ personally. And don't think this is a contradiction of uh, being unequally yoked with someone else, with someone who's not a Christian. These people were married to begin with. That's the key there. But the other reason that Paul encourages these people to stay together is for the sake of their children. And that's what these strange verses in verse 14 are all about, speaking about uh, staying together to prevent your children from becoming unclean and that you can sanctify them. What he's saying is that if there's at least one godly parent at home, or possibly God willing two in the future, you're increasing your child's exposure of the things of God and you're decreasing their chance of going into the world and falling off the rails. At all costs, stay together. But verses 12 and 13, they also say that if they are willing... And verse 15 says, uh, God has called us to live in peace. And tragically, sometimes divorce does happen because it is more peaceful to be apart than it is to be together. But what's the key to it all? What's the motto as we approach divorce? It's about the other person. It's always about the other person. It's about uh, if you stay together for their sake. You stay together for the child's sake. You stay together if they are willing. It's about the other person. Stay together because Paul says in verse 7 that marriage is a gift. So don't give it up. Paul also says in verse 7 that singleness is a gift. And as we look now down at our Bibles to verse 25 to 40, Paul begins to address the singles in the church of Corinth. As a single, you hear the term gift of singleness thrown around in church circles a lot. And I know that your question may be, how is singleness a gift? How is being lonely a gift? How is uh, this feel of rejection a gift? What does Paul have to say to the single people of Corinth? The first thing he says is to stop looking for greener pastures. Stop looking for greener pastures. Look down at your Bibles at verses uh, 25 to 28, uh, starting from verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. 
Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin married, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. What do I mean by looking for greener pastures? Paul is saying to the single people, if you're single, don't try and get out of it. And he's saying to the people that are in a committed relationship, if you're engaged or betrothed in a committed relationship, don't seek to get out of that commitment either. If at the heart of your desire to be in a relationship is purely you just want to be in a relationship and it's not love that drives you to be in a relationship with this person and it's a sense of I'd rather be in a relationship than be single because I think that would be better, then you will never be satisfied. If you desire a relationship because it seems nicer than it would be to be single, you'll get into a relationship and I think you'll find that you'll find singleness attractive again. In our culture, this is the quickest way to break hearts in the church. Getting into relationships willy-nilly, on the commit- and as soon as the commitments come along, you bail out. You realise, maybe this isn't what I wanted. Maybe I want to be single, maybe I want someone else. Guys and girls, you need to stop this approach. This constant swing between single and not because deep in your heart what's really driving you is you always think the grass is greener on the other side. Leading people on is cruel and it needs to stop in the church. It is an awful witness to the world. I've had it done to me cruelly before and it hurts. Because who are you thinking about when you lead people on? You're thinking about yourself. Who should we be considering when we're approaching relationships? The other person. We should be thinking about the other person. I confess, I have led uh, girls on before, uh, unawares to me. And we are all flawed and we are all broken. And if you have been led on by someone who is seeking after greener pastures, I encourage you to forgive and, and reconciliation is needed. But you see, it's easy to lead on lead people on when all you're thinking about is yourself. When you're thinking about the other person, both of your hearts are protected. It mustn't be a relationship that drives you towards relationship. It should just be love for the other person. But along with this intention that goes towards a serious relationship and eventual marriage, is an understanding the responsibility of marriage. Understanding the responsibility of marriage. Look down at your Bibles at verses 29 to 35. <clears throat> what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as they, they do not. Those who mourn as they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world is not, is, in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul here is revealing one of the greatest gifts of singleness, free time. You can live for yourself, essentially. You can go to bed when you want, you can get up when you want, you can wear what you want, you can eat when you want, and you can eat what you want. You can watch what you want. But most of all, the most important thing is that we have free time to devote ourselves to the Lord. Many of our young adults and youth leaders are single and they have so much to give and they do such a great job in the ministry. What a great job they do. The chances are, statistically speaking, that many of us will be married eventually. So the takeaway point is this. Enjoy this time. Embrace your singleness. Use it for God's glory because it's something that we as married people don't have. Use this time to devote yourself to others. You can still serve others. You can still live by the principle that married people do, that it's about the other person. You can live that out as a single person also, but to many, many people. Listen, I, I love marriage and I love my wife, Jo, but I really miss these things. I miss watching the cricket. I miss uh, watching the footy and playing cricket. I miss watching my shows and my movies. But I would never trade that in for Joe. I love Joe more than any of those things. But there's one thing that I do mourn about. I don't have as much time to uh, invest in other people. I don't have the time that many single people have. You need to understand that marriage is a huge commitment. And everyone needs to understand that. And married couples see here what Paul is saying essentially Family is your first ministry. Devote yourself to your family before the church. We all need to weigh up the commitment of marriage and how we are about to commit our whole lives to another person, that it's going to be about another person for life. Paul goes on to say in verses 36 to 38, as he alluded to in verses 8 and 9, how if you are engaged and you can't control your passions, Uh, then there is no sin. In fact, it would be wise to hurry up and get married. If you both uh, understand the commitment that it's going to take, and if it's both consensual, then go ahead and get married. It is a beautiful thing. But this also proves the point of the reason for marriage and what it is not. You don't get married or enter a relationship because because of the pressures from the church or because you like the idea of it. Marriage is not about status. It is a gift. Singleness is not about status. It is a gift. As we look now to verses 17 to 24, as you first read these 40 verses of chapter 7, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a passage about married people, there's a passage about single people, and in the middle there's this passage about slavery and circumcision, what's, all, what's it all about? And I would imagine in my mind that it, it's like a rope, a continuous rope, and we have um, 
marriage on one side in verses 1 to 16 and singleness on the other side in verses 25 to 40. And it's verses 17 to 24 that is the knot that ties it all together. It is all one rope. How is that? As we read uh, verses 17 to 24, um, you need to understand that a lot of people have used this as a reason, as an excuse for slavery. And we're not going to get into that tonight, but it's not. Um, That just comes from an ignorance of not understanding of what a slave was back in Paul's day. But let's begin by looking at verses 17 to 20. 17 to 20. The point is this. God doesn't expect external signs and statuses. God doesn't expect external signs and statuses. Paul uses the example that if a man is circumcised when he gets saved, should he become uncircumcised? That's a very strange procedure. Or if a guy is circumcised, should he become uncircumcised? Praise the Lord, the answer is no. We might giggle at this because we know that our salvation, our relationship, our standing with God is not based on our status. It's not based on works. That is a a good Christian doctrine. So if, if we know that these external signs like circumcision and whether we're a slave or a freeman or any of those things, if we know that means nothing to God and our standing with him, why do we think that our relationship statuses are any different? Verse 19 says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Why do we think that doesn't apply to our relationship status? Singles, your relationship status does not define you and determine how close you are to God. Married couples, your marital status does not define you or determine how close you are to God. Whether we realise it or not, the church has this awful culture of belittling single people. Singles feel like second-rate members of the church because of this deep-rooted pressure Uh, to conform to the status of what the church is putting on them. It's this pressure that drives them to look for greener pastures. It's this pressure that drives them to be fearful of commitment. It's this pressure that drives them uh, to rush into marriages and relationships prematurely. And I'm speaking to myself, to those of us who are not single, we need to be careful how we do treat single people to bless them but not belittle them. Instead of inferring that they're missing out because they're not in a relationship, we should honour them and bless them. They are so precious to our church and to our ministries, they give so much of their time, more than we ever could. We should lift them up rather than lift up our statuses. God doesn't expect external signs and statuses Neither should we. Single people, you are called to be free from status. To be free from the pressures of the church and of the world. And that's what verses 21 to 24 are all about. You are free from status. You are free from status. All around these middle verses, Paul says three times, 
brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in that God has called them, when God has called them. If God has called you, you don't have to look to change your status in order to impress him, in order to be closer to him. You are free from status. The only status that you belong to is that of child of God, that of slave of Christ, as verse 22 says. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't be a slave to men. Don't be a slave to the expectations, a slave that would hold you bondage to your statuses. Be a slave to Christ because he actually paid for you. He actually died for you. As wonderful as marriage is, it didn't die for you. Marriage points us to Christ, but it didn't die for us. As wonderful as sex is, and as beautiful as it is when it's in God's design, sex did not die for us. We are not sex's slave. We are not marriage, marriage and relationship status's slave. The church didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. Mark 10.45 says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus paid the ransom with his holy life to buy you out of the slavery of status. Your only worthy status is that of his child. All night I've been saying, it's about the other person, it's about the other person. Married couples, it's about the other person. Divorcees, it's about the other person. Singles, it's about the other person. If you're pursuing a relationship, it's about the other person. Well, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Jesus gave his life. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. Because for Jesus, it was all about the other person. You might say, well, hang on, that doesn't sound like a, a good deal at all, being a slave to, a Christ, to Christ. It sounds like some sort of egotistical God that would desire me to be his slave. But being a slave is the most freeing thing of all. How does that work? There was a, a woman who uh, got married to a, to a man and she felt a little bit pressured into this marriage in the legalistic background that she had. Um, but she was willing to go, go through with it. And they had an okay honeymoon and they came home and their first day home uh, in their new house and their new marriage at the breakfast table, her new husband slid across the table a list of things uh, written down for her. And they were all expectations that he wanted her to fulfill. He expected her to have a spotless house and to um, uh, have a hot meal for him ready every night after he finished work. He expected her to be sexually available to him in all areas. He expected her to keep up appearances in the church. And this woman fulfilled these expectations, but she did it out of obligation. This husband passed away a couple of years later, and uh, she ended up falling in love with another man. She felt guilty for not missing her first husband, but he was so cruel to her, she didn't really miss him. But this new man was different. He was kind and loving and serving, and they got married, and their first morning back, in their new house, and their new marriage, she was waiting for him at the breakfast table, expecting him to slide a list across the table to her and give, him, give her his list of expectations. But she was shocked to find out that he didn't do that. 
It was all that she was used to, but he just loved her, and he loved her for who she was, and he, he, he gave of himself willingly to her in all areas. So this woman, instead of resenting all those expectations that her first husband gave to her, she actually ended up fulfilling them even more so with the second husband. She had a clean house for him. She had a hot meal ready for him. She was available for him in any way that he saw fit, that she wanted to bless him. She was like a slave in the first marriage, but she was also like a slave in the second marriage, in some sense, from as you looked in. But she couldn't feel more free. That's what it's like to be Christ's slave. God doesn't expect external signs and statuses. He doesn't expect us to keep up appearances. He doesn't expect us to, to do all these things. Being a slave is the most freeing thing of all for Christ. I would encourage you as a church to, to consciously hang up the boots on statuses. To say to Jesus, you are my saviour. My relationship status is not my saviour. You paid my ransom and I owe my life to you. I don't owe it to the pressures of the church. Married couples, you need to hang up the boots on your status and uplifting your status. Instead, just give, give and give to your partner, not just in sex, but in all areas of your marriage. To remember, whether you're married or single or whatever you are, that it's all about the other person. If you are single, to seek him for your future. Lay your status at the cross and glorify him now with all that is within you. Whenever you're struggling to think, uh, to, to, to live out this life, that it's all about the other person, think about Jesus. Think about how he willingly walked the ro road to Jerusalem, knowing what would happen to him there, knowing that it would come at great cost for him to pay the ransom to you, for you to be free from the slavery of status. Remember Jesus' sacrifice and how, for him, it was all about the other person.